I want to begin with a word from the Lord for you tonight. And I know it's a word from the Lord because He spoke it. And the word is come away and rest. Come away and rest. I want to pray that for us as we begin to open His word. Rest, not sleep. But rest, because resting in Jesus is, as we sang, power. There is power in resting in the Lord. Resting in the Lord is listening, and it's, it's being content. It's recognizing His presence in, in, a, in a place, in your heart, in your life, in this moment. It's hearing His words. And so, Father, I pray that as we open Your Word tonight, that You would bring rest. Some of my brothers and sisters in here this evening are weary just from the week. Physically tired, Lord. And so I pray that there would be restfulness even in the receiving of Your Word. I pray, Father, for those who are spiritually tired, overwrought, uh, maybe having poured out so much recently that they, they just need, they need a refilling, Lord. And that happens when we rest in You. So I pray rest for that brother, that sister, to be filled up and, and strengthened and revitalized. Father, some are simply weary of life. And I pray rest would come tonight as we study Your Word and we think through. Lord, I I pray against our study being like that of a college class that is in and of itself exhausting. I would pray, Lord, that by the power of Your Holy Spirit and the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ in and among us tonight, that the study of Your Word would be enlivening and encouraging and building up and strengthening, Father, as we come to You for peace and for power and rest. And I pray this, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Cheryl and my girls, Anna Marie and Naomi, were talking about marriage. And uh, my wife wisely said, the best person to marry is someone you are friends with first. To which Anna Marie replied, so the second time you can marry someone you don't know? And she said it with that quizzical way about her. She cracks me up. We were made for relationship, right? We were made to know each other. And and to know our God. That's really the key, I think, to all of life. Is We were made to know God. And here's the thing. God knows His people. He knows His people intimately. He's made it clear that His deep desire is to walk in close relationship with us. It sounds so weird to me even to say that. God wants to walk with me. I get it the other way around. I want to walk with God. I want to be close to God. I want to know and understand my Lord and my Savior and my God through Jesus Christ His Son and and by the presence of His Holy Spirit. I want that. God wants that. And God knows His people. He chose His people. He knows His people and He chose His people. There's a rhyme for you right out of the gate. He knows and He chose Israel. When God puts His seal on someone, as we already started to read on Sunday, He never falters, He never forgets. 
He knows those whom He has chosen. He seals, and when He seals, that's it. Good to go. He's, he's got you. He, he knows and He doesn't forget His people. So John says in Revelation chapter 7, verse 1, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth. We talked about Sunday, that picture of judgment. So that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. So we know what their purpose is. Saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. I got something I need to do, the Lord would say. I want to secure some servants for a very specific task. Now, going all the way back, 4,000 years of earth's history, God covenanted with Abraham. And then with Isaac, his son, and then with Yaakov, his son. Yaakov, Jacob, he had 12 sons. And that began, that was the establishment of the 12 tribes of Israel, Jacob's sons. Now you Bible students know this, but I want to review, I want to think this through a little bit tonight before we get out of this first part of Revelation 7. Because Revelation 7 gives us the final list of these tribes in the Bible. Now they're listed in various ways throughout the Bible and not always exactly the same. Sometimes the order is tweaked. Sometimes some of the names are different um, for a specific reason. Follow this through with me for a moment. The first full list that we get of the 12 sons of Jacob, who are then the 12 tribes of Israel, is Genesis chapter 35, verse 22. Now you can just listen or turn there, but I'm going to go through some of these pretty quickly. Genesis 35, 22, now there were 12 sons of Jacob. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, then Simeon, or I always refer to Shimon, the Jewish, the Hebrew pronunciation, and Levi, and Judah, and Issachar, and Zebulun. There's the first six, all sons of Jacob through Leah. And then the sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. And then the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's maid, Dan and Naphtali, and the sons of Zilpah, Leah's maid, Gad and Asher. These are the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Paddan Aram. Interesting family, isn't it? Twelve sons of Jacob by four women. Scandalous. And yet, God works with scandal. God deals with messy people. So right from the beginning, even the marvelous twelve tribes of Israel have a scandalous past. But God chose them, and He knows them, and these are the sons of Jacob. So again, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. There are the twelve sons. First time they're listed in the Scripture. But other lists follow throughout the Hebrew Bible and on into the New Testament. The second list, the sons of Israel and their sons, are listed out in Genesis 46, verses 8-19. through 19. Now you might want to jot them down. I have all the verses up there. But for reference, here's the the listings of the sons of Israel. 
And then in Genesis 49, verses 1 through 28, Jacob gives the prophetic blessing of each one of his sons. So all 12 are listed out there in Genesis 49. 13, really, but that's another story in just a moment. And then the Exodus begins. So the next place we see in Scripture, the fourth mention, is Exodus chapter 1, verse 2. Now these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, who is Israel. You know that. Israel, Jacob, Jacob, Israel, same guy. And they came to Egypt with Jacob, and they came, each one with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the persons who came from the loins of Jacob were 70 in number, but Joseph was in Egypt. So there's the list again, all the names together. Their names follow once again in Numbers chapter 1, verses 1 through 16, which designates each tribe's leader. Now they're the tribes, because the sons have all died, but they're the tribes, and all the tribal names follow the names of the sons, and each one of those tribes had a leader, and each of those are named in Numbers chapter 1, verses 1 through 16. Then you get to Numbers chapter 1, verses 20 through 44, and they're named again, but this time there's an impressive numbering of all the young men ages 20 and up who are able to go to war. So the second half of Numbers chapter 1, which is the fifth listing of the tribes of Israel, The second half is for a census of strength and battle. Well then, the seventh listing is Numbers chapter 2. There's a lot right there at the beginning of Numbers. Verses 1 through 33 of Numbers chapter 2 lists out each one of the tribes, but this time by campsite. How they're supposed to camp around the tabernacle, with the Levites closest in, and then the rest of the tribes gathered all around that. In fact, what's interesting about the list in Numbers 2, verses 1 through 33, is Levi is not listed. Because as I said, they don't have a camp. Levi is right up against the tabernacle, right up close to the, to the wall going around the tabernacle. How dare God build a wall? I'm sorry, that was political. <laughs> right around the tabernacle, the Levites are there, but then there were four major campsites all around the tabernacle, and every one of the tribes are listed out there, Numbers chapter 2. Then you go on to Numbers chapter 7, and we come to the 8th listing. And that inventories through the entire chapter, a long chapter there, it inventories offerings of the 12 tribal leaders by tribal name, and it gives the leader's name of each tribe's offering. And in that numbering, it's interesting, you get Ephraim and Manasseh instead of Joseph, because Ephraim and Manasseh are Joseph's sons. So they're listed as tribes, each one of them with a tribal leader. And then also in that same list of Numbers chapter 7, Levi is excluded. Not in the list. Why? Because Levi, as the priestly tribe, receives the offerings. And the offerings to God are also for the priesthood. See, God figured all that out. I want you to give offering later to the temple, now to the tabernacle, but as those offerings come, they would provide for the Levitical priesthood. So the Levites aren't considered part of the number because they receive the offerings, whereas the other 12 tribes, including now Ephraim and Manasseh, they all bring their offering. Numbers chapter 7. 
Then Deuteronomy chapter 27, verses 12 and 13, Moses gives some special plans to be adhered to once they crossed the Jordan and came into the Promised Land. These were for a covenant ceremony that would take place on Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. Now Cheryl and I have stood atop Mount Gerizim. It's not a place we normally go on our Israel tours because it's <laughs> it's uh, West Bank dangerous. It's not in a good location, but we talked a, a guide into taking us up there one time. Didn't tell you all about it. Didn't want you to worry. But Mount Gerizim is a rather steep cliff. We say mount. We were on the top of the mount. It really is like a high hill. And then there's a steep cliff face going down, and then it rounds up and goes right up Mount Ebal. So you can stand on the one and, you know, it's like a a stone's throw almost across to the other, maybe further than a stone's throw. But the plan was, there in Deuteronomy 27, all the tribes are listed, but half are listed to, to stand on Mount Gerizim, the Mount of Blessing. The other half have to stand on or at the base of Mount Ebal, which is the Mount of Curses. And then there was a listing there at the end of Deuteronomy of blessings and curses. All the blessings listed and the tribes on Mount Gerizim would say, Amen! And all the curses listed, the tribes on Mount Ebal would say, Amen! It's an interesting list because in that one, Levi and Joseph are listed, but not Ephraim and Manasseh. Well, why not Ephraim and Manasseh? Because they're represented by Joseph. Joseph is their father, they're the sons. So sometimes you get a list that has Joseph's name in it with Levi, 12. Other times you get the list, no Levi, but Ephraim and Manasseh are in, 12. So that's Deuteronomy 27. In Deuteronomy 33, the tribes are again listed out. Moses now gives blessing for each and every tribe, including again Levi and Joseph with the subcategories of Ephraim and Manasseh. So interesting, in Deuteronomy 33, the only time all 14 are named. The 14 tribes of Israel, if you will. First Chronicles then, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, once again gives a listing of the tribes. That's the 11th list in the Hebrew Scriptures. There's only one more, which I find significant. The 12th listing of the 12 tribes of Israel is Ezekiel 48, verses 30 through 35, where all 12 sons are named, their names on the gates of the millennial city of Jerusalem. And that's the last time in the Hebrew Scriptures that the 12 tribes are listed out. Now stay with me, because this is important. 12 tribes listed 12 times in the Hebrew Scriptures. But again, if you include Levi and Ephraim and Manasseh rather than Joseph, because they're the sons and and they become tribes, if you include Levi, Ephraim, and Manasseh, there are actually 13 tribes of Israel. You know what's fascinating to me? Twelve listings in the Hebrew Scriptures. How many do you think are in the New Testament? Just one. Revelation chapter 7. It's the list that is before us. It's the only time in the New Testament that all of the tribes are listed. So you actually have technically 13 tribes. You have 13 lists in the Bible. God is a God of order. He he knows what He's doing. This is the final list here in Revelation chapter 7. It's the only time, again, that the tribes are listed in the entire New Testament. And what we get in Revelation 7 verses 4 through 8 is 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel for that very special work. Verse 4, and I heard the number of those who were sealed. 
144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel, from the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed, and from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000, from the tribe of Gad, 12,000, from the tribe of Asher, 12,000, from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000, from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Shimon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. And from the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. And we talked about Sunday, why they're sealed. As Isaiah prophesied, Isaiah 66, verse 19, God said, I will set a sign among them and will send survivors from them to the nations. Tarshish and Put, and Lud, and Meshach, and Tubal, and and Javan, to the distant coastlands that have neither heard my fame nor seen my glory, and they will declare my glory among the nations. That's the 144,000. That's their job. 144,000 evangelists. And by the way, the 144,000 will see the fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy given on the Mount of Olives. Matthew 24, 14. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to the nations, and then the end shall come. I told you for years, I've heard missionaries with with good intention saying, that's our verse. We have to fulfill this verse before the end can come. No, you won't fulfill the verse before the end will come. We won't. We will not. We will be raptured with the job unfinished. But the 144,000 and some other things that God has in His arsenal, will be happening and will bring about the spread of the Gospel and the teaching of the Gospel to every corner of the whole entire world as a testimony, and then the end's going to come. And it will come on, as the angel told Daniel, it will come like a flood. I want you to read the list one more time. Go ahead and look at it. Just look at it. I haven't circled it circled in my Bible so they're easy to see. Listen to the list as I just call out the names... Judah, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Shimon, (laughs) Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. Now when you read through the list, what we can easily do as Bible students is we see, oh, it's another list of the sons of Israel. Okay, got it, move on. No, don't do that. Hold up. There is more here even than what we talked about on Sunday. I want you to notice two more things. Other than the absence of Dan... That's kind of an obvious standout. Dan's not in the list. We talked about why on Sunday morning. But check this out. Interestingly, Judah is listed first. Should be Reuben. Reuben's the firstborn. Typically in the list, Reuben is the one who is listed first. So I saw that. I thought, what's that about? Why is that? Best commentary on Scripture is? Scripture. So we go look. Is there any other time where Judah is listed first when you see the listings of the twelve tribes of Israel. And there are. There are two times. Twice in the Hebrew Scriptures, Judah's name is listed first in the listing of the tribes. In Numbers chapter 2, where Judah is told, I want you camped out on the east side, and your marching orders are, when when the cloud goes up when the Shekinah glory of God raises up above and begins to move to depart from the tabernacle Judah goes first Judah is the first tribe out in the march okay remember that so Numbers chapter 2 Judah's in the list first they're getting their marching orders and they're the first ones to march the second place we see in the Hebrew scriptures 
Where Judah is listed first is Numbers chapter 7, and it's where each of the tribes are giving their offerings. Think about that. Their offerings, their marching. Marching orders, offerings. Judah is first when it comes to marching. Judah is first when it comes to offering. And Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. What did he do? He went first. He marched out first. When, as it were, the glory of God would depart this planet, Jesus marched to the cross. He was first one to the cross. He says, take up your crosses and follow me. Because he went first. His marching orders. Judah goes first. Jesus, lion of the tribe of Judah, goes first. What about the offerings? Well, Jesus made the offering. He marched first. He gave first. As Judah is the first one listed. John 19, verse 17, They took Jesus therefore, and He went out bearing His own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is in Hebrew, Golgotha. Jesus went first. But also, John 19, verse 30, Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, He said, Tetelus die, it is finished. And He bowed His head and gave up His spirit, the ultimate offering. Jesus is first. Judah is first listed here. Judah, by the way, also means praise. And so what's interesting is as Israel marched out, praise always went first. As we follow Jesus Christ, we follow Him in worship and praise as the first one to march and as the first one to literally offer Himself. So, Judah's first. But there's one other interesting thing to note here, perhaps more that we'll discover at another time, but for now, in the listing of the 144,000, in the 12 tribes that are here, two tribes are missing, not just one. You may have picked this up on Sunday. Dan is not here, excluded. We talked about perhaps because of idolatry. Dan was the poster tribe of idolatry. They led the charge and actually led a lot of Israel into idolatry. Dan also may possibly, not saying this dogmatically, but may possibly be the root of Antichrist himself. And again, we looked at these things. So Dan is out, and you'll note in the listing, Levi is in. That should make for 12 tribes. And there are 12, 12,000 from 12 tribes, 144,000. But if you look at the list, Levi is in there, but so is Joseph... So is Manasseh. Ephraim's missing. Ephraim's not listed. Did, did God forget them? Maybe that's it. He, he, you know, Jesus was in a hurry. He's given the list to John. John's writing it all down. What he saw who were sealed. And, and someone just missed something here. The Bible tells us in Isaiah 49.15, Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget but I will not forget you. So thinking this through, God does not forget. We know He does not forget, but this is so strange. In this list, Manasseh is listed, Ephraim is not, and Joseph is listed. And it's the only time we see this happen in the Bible. Joseph, the father of Ephraim and Manasseh, he's listed, and Manasseh's listed, but not Ephraim. So why? Keep your finger here and go all the way back to Genesis 48. Genesis chapter 48. Are you there? 
follow along. It came about after these things that Joseph was told, Behold, your father is sick. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, with him. Note this, it's important. He took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Why is Manasseh first? Because Manasseh is firstborn. Keep that in mind. When it was told to Jacob, Behold, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel, who is Jacob, collected his strength and sat up in the bed. Then Jacob said to Joseph, God appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and numerous, and I will make you a company of peoples, and I will give this land to your descendants after you for an everlasting possession. Now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. Oh, I love Jacob. What a trickster. He is already changing the order. Note that. He says, Ephraim and Manasseh are mine as Reuben and Simeon. Reuben is firstborn, Simeon is secondborn. And he says, Ephraim and Manasseh. He should have said Manasseh and Ephraim. Because Manasseh was born first. But verse 6, But your offspring that have been born after them shall be yours, he says to Joseph, and shall be called by the names of their brothers in their inheritance. So, so Joseph, your inheritance, it skips your first two, it goes to the others. But your first two boys, Ephraim and Manasseh, they're mine. They now will fall under my inheritance, he says. Very interesting. This is all part of prophecy. Jacob is functioning. Israel is listening here to the Spirit of God and doing exactly what God intended for him to do. Skip down to verse 10. Now the eyes of Israel were so dim from age that he could not see. Then Joseph brought them close to him and he kissed them, which probably was, you know, scratchy. And he embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your children as well. Then Joseph took them from his knees and he bowed with his face to the ground. And Joseph took them both. Ephraim with his right hand toward Israel's left, because he's the younger, right? And Manasseh with his left hand toward Israel's right and brought them close to him. Because he needs to get them blessed correctly. Manasseh, firstborn to the right hand, and Ephraim, secondborn to the left hand of his father. He pushes them forward, but Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, crossing his hands, although Manasseh had been firstborn. He blessed Joseph, and he said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. The God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day. The angel who has redeemed me from all evil. Bless the lads. Who's that angel? Anyone want to venture a guess? Let's go with the Sunday school answer. Jesus Christ. Or just Jesus is good. I think the angel he's talking about there is Jesus. He's talking about the messenger who redeemed him. What other messenger redeems? Angels don't redeem. They bring a message of redemption sometimes, but they don't redeem. Oh, thank you. I'll try that in a second. Angels don't redeem. Jesus does. So the angel who has redeemed me, he says, from all evil, bless the lads. 
And may my name live on in them and the names of my fathers, Abraham, Isaac, May they grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Well, Joseph, I don't think, is hearing a word his father is saying because when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on Ephraim's head, it displeased him. And he grasped his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Place your hand on his head. Oy vey! But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also will become a people, and he also will be great. However, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. He blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Secondborn, now firstborn. Firstborn, now secondborn. Ephraim would go on to be the dominant tribe. In fact, probably the largest tribe in Israel. And what's interesting here is that in terms of both size and land, Ephraim was the largest tribe in the northern kingdom of Israel after the kingdom divided, after Solomon, his son Rehoboam was kind of a jerk, and then Jeroboam rises up and ten northern tribes follow Jeroboam and and the two southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin, well, they, they follow Rehoboam. The Levites stuck with Rehoboam, ultimately. Others would come down as well. But in that division of land, the northern kingdom of Israel, Ephraim was so big that oftentimes in the Bible, the northern kingdom was referred to as Ephraim. So Ephraim, the secondborn, becomes the firstborn and has quite a family, quite a tribe Ephraim is now in the first position. So why is he left out? Back in Revelation chapter 7, why is Ephraim not named at all? He is not the technical firstborn, but he's the positional firstborn. And you may notice at the end or toward the end there in verse 8 that Joseph is named. Manasseh's named. Manasseh was the firstborn, but moved into second position. Ephraim is not named, though they should be in first position. Instead, Joseph is named. Why? Jacob did exactly to his grandsons what he did to his own brother. Remember the story of Jacob and what he did? He, he came in and he bought Esau's birthright. Esau was firstborn. Jacob was secondborn. Came out holding on to his heel, trying to tug him back in so he could get out first. But, but Jacob, secondborn, bought Esau's birthright and stole Esau's blessing. And now he does the same thing with his grandchildren. Position in Israel is everything. The positional firstborn son had all the rights and privileges and responsibilities and authority of the father. So the reason why Ephraim is not listed among the 144,000 is because Joseph is. It's the same thing. To say Joseph is to say Ephraim. To say Ephraim is to say Joseph. To say the father is to say the son. And to say the Son is to say the Father, as Jesus said in John 5.17, My Father is working until now, and I myself am working. Implying that because His Father's working, He's working, 
He is the Father, and the Father is Him. For this reason, John 5.18, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Him because He was not only breaking the Sabbath, which He wasn't, but also was calling God His own Father, making Himself equal with God. What I'm telling you here is very simply that Joseph and Ephraim are equal. So you can say Joseph, and it applies to Ephraim. You can say Ephraim, and it applies to Joseph. It's the same thing. Which is why Manasseh is listed second born by position now. And Joseph is listed, which refers to Ephraim first born by position. Because father and son, whether it's Joseph or Ephraim, are in the same position in the line of Israel among the tribes. Just as Jesus said in John 10 verse 30, I and the father are one. So to say, now it would be really weird if we were reading through the list and we saw Ephraim and Joseph and not Manasseh. But it's not weird that it's Manasseh and Joseph and not Ephraim. Okay, you got it? Is this just Rick geeking out on Bible study? Are you with me? Okay. I just think that's amazingly cool and it reminds us of the importance of the father-son relationship in Israel and when you call Jesus the Son of God, you are calling Him God. You are referring to father and son, son and father. Either way, you're talking to God. Now three important aspects of the one same God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit and yet positionally Father and Son are equal, and so is Spirit. So God knows His people. And just as God knows His people, even in this last listing, God is intentional in who He lists and in who He's talking about. And just as God the Father knows His people, Jesus the Son knows His people and does not forget a single one. Dan is not forgotten. Dan has their inheritance, Ezekiel 48. They return in the Millennial Kingdom. They are listed on the gates of the Millennial Kingdom or the Millennial City of Jerusalem. So Dan is not forgotten and Ephraim is not forgotten. They are well represented in Joseph in the listing of the 144,000 and the 12 tribes. And if Jesus is that specific and that intentional in remembering all the names of all the sons of Israel, guess what? By His divine authority, He has not forgotten a single one of you. In fact, as He sealed the 144,000, before that, He sealed multiplied millions in the church. I remind you again of these verses. 2 Corinthians 1.22, He sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. Wow! Ephesians 1.13 You were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. You're sealed and you have an inheritance. Ephesians 4.30 reminds us not to grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom we were sealed for the day of redemption. We're not the 144,000 sealed. No, we are the precursors who have a sealing and ascending. They have a sealing and ascending. Right? They were sealed to be sent. So are you. So am I. The difference is our seal is, as we said Sunday, not the name of Yahweh and Yeshua, but is the Holy Spirit of the living God. You have been sealed with God's Spirit. 
That's marvelous. Praise God for that. And Jesus prayed in John 17.30 that we may all be one, even as He says, You, Father, are in Me, and I in You, that they also may be in us. Why, Jesus? So that the world may believe that You sent Me. So as the 144,000 here, back in context, they're sealed, they're sent out with this mission, with this purpose, with this evangelical calling, so are you right now. So am I. And while, yes, we will leave the task unfinished, we still have the task before us as long as we draw breath to tell the world about Jesus. All of this matters. And I know I took you on a little ride through the 12 tribes here. But now, as we continue on in chapter 7, something happens. We, we leave earth, and the sealing of the of the 12,000 of each of the 12 tribes, the 144,000, we, we leave earth and now we ascend. And in verse 5, we're in heaven. And in heaven, we get a view of the impact of this awesome three and a half year evangelistic campaign. And what we realize is amazing grace. When I fully understood that after the church is caught up, that into this worldwide global tribulation that God is still saving people, it blew me away. I was raised with thought, I had the mentality that Jesus was going to come, and that's it. No second chances. No second chances. No opportunity. Man, once that happens, gone, done, finished. Not so. Because here in the first three and a half years, of the tribulation period, grace is given. Redemption remains. Forgiveness still flows. The blood of Christ extends that far right into the tribulation. And here's the outcome. Verse 9, After these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count. That's a big number. From every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues. So it can't be the 144,000, right? Because 144,000 are of the tribes of Israel. These are from every tribe, people, tongue, and nation standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. We're in heaven now. And they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshipped God saying, Amen! Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen! It's an extension of the scene of worship that we already noted in chapters 4 and 5. Worship going on in heaven, but then we're down on earth. We see what's happening there. Chapter 6, beginning of chapter 7, several of these are sealed. All of a sudden, we're, we're back up in heaven, and the worship hasn't stopped. The worship is still going on. And what we see here is what we saw in chapter 4 and chapter 5. It continues right here, and that's very simply this. Worship begets worship. See, when worship starts up in heaven, there is no end. Rachel, they're not limited to five songs before the teaching. You know, there's not, oh man, how many songs into worship are we right now? We've got to get a break from this. No, no. One group worships and the next group goes, that's good. And they start to worship. 
And the next group says, ah, we want to get in on that. And they start to worship, which spurs the first group on. And around and around it goes. So now another group joins. Because we have the elders and the angels and the four living creatures. And now a, a fourth group joins in this holy, heavenly, hallelujah of hullabaloo. Just this ongoing cacophony of praise and worship. Psalm 103 verse 20 says, Bless the Lord, you His angels, mighty in strength, who perform His word, obeying the voice of His word. Bless the Lord, all you His hosts, who serve Him, doing His will. Bless the Lord. John 5.23, Jesus says, All will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. And so the praise of the Lamb and the praise of the Father, man, it just goes on and on and on. And these people, this group, not the elders, not angels, not the 144,000, they're on earth, not the four living creatures, No, this group of people is unique and they begin to join in and spur on even more worship from all the others. Well, who are they? Who are these ones spawning all this praise? Note some things about them. Number one, they are an innumerable multitude. John points points out no one could count. So many, this is a massive, massive number of worshipers. And they're all similar. Okay, They're from every nation, tribe, people, and tongue. So we know they're people who now are in heaven. Who have died and are present there before the Lord. Not the raptured church, as you'll see. They're just there. From all nations of the world, all peoples of the world. And they're worshiping in this uncountable, you can't put a number on it. You know, if we really wanted to, I think we could probably do some research and go back several uh, hundred years, if not the 2,000 years, and get a bead on how many people have been saved. I think we probably could at least make an educated guess on the number of people who have been saved across 2,000 years. I think, just Rick's opinion, this number will outstrip that. That more people are going to be saved. J. Vernon McGee, by the way, agrees with me on this. He says more people are saved in the tribulation than the church saved in 2,000 years. Wow. Now, if we're you know, going to compare numbers, again, don't be dogmatic with something like that, but this is a huge soul harvest. Second thing to note, they're all wearing white robes. Not fine linen, bright and clean. Not white garments, which is the phrase always used when talking about the church, but they're white robes. It's a a different word. These are white flowing mantles. These robes, as in someone, well, they would wear a white robe like this in a hospital setting, in rooms of healing. White robe, it's, it's a different thing here, and yet all of this innumerable multitude are wearing the white robes. And they're all holding palm branches. All of them. White robes, palm branches, innumerable from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation on earth. And as we put this picture together, well, why palm branches? What's the deal with that? Let Scripture interpret Scripture. And once again, we ask the question, where do we see palm branches? Where do we see them before? And go all the way back, and you hear in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 40, 
Moses declared by the law of God, by God's uh, command, now on the first day you shall take for yourselves the foliage of beautiful trees, palm branches and boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. It's the feast of Sukkot. And they're to take these palm branches and anything else they can and build little shelters, little campsites. Every year, still today in Israel, in, in the fall, they celebrate Sukkot. The Feast of Booths. And they make booths out in their backyards or out on the trellis of their apartment complexes. As I've told you, it's bizarre to see pictures of it. You can go on and Google this. Pictures in Israel of these apartment high-rises and all of their tiny little porches have booths all over them. You know, palm branches hanging off and make these little tents right there out on the... Interesting. And that's the first time we see this, the palm branch. Man, waving the palm, palm branches to the Jewish people would symbolize and celebrate God's covering of peace and provision and prosperity and indicate the coming kingdom. And in fact, peek ahead for a moment at what the elder tells John in verse 15. Note this. The last part of the verse, he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. You know what the word tabernacle is in, in the Hebrew? Sukkah. He's going to spread his sukkah over them. It's an indication of the millennial kingdom. Note this, the verse isn't up there, but Zechariah 14 talks about the fact that in the millennial kingdom, we will celebrate Sukkot every year. We will go up to Jerusalem. The whole world goes up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Booth, the Feast of the Covering. Jews today celebrate it to remember how God covered them through the wilderness. But here we have this particular group, not Jews, but from all the nations, and they've all got the palm branches which speak of the covering of peace, provision, and prosperity. And that's why... When Jesus came into Jerusalem, the people reacted the way they did. You ever ask the question, why did they bring out palm branches? We call it Palm Sunday. And lay palm branches down before Him. And and they had palm branches. They were waving as they shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Why are they doing that? Because they were expecting the King to bring the Millennial Kingdom. And they were ready to celebrate Sukkot right there. It's why Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration, when he saw Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus, said, hey, it's good that we're here, Lord. We should build three sukkahs. Three tabernacles. One for each of you. Because Peter's thinking the kingdom is now. Kingdom's here. Sukkah time. Feast of booths, man. So you put this all together. Palm branches in the Feast of Booths. The palm branches as the worship of Jesus continues as He comes into Jerusalem. And here we see all of these people, innumerable in number, wearing white robes, holding palm branches as though they're expecting or looking toward their King. Palm branches of peace. So they're awaiting a kingdom. They're worshiping the King who saved them. And note this, note what they're saying, specifically in verse 10. Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the little Lamb. Now they're not offering salvation to God. That makes no sense. Salvation to God. How do you save the one who saves? You know, 
God, God doesn't need salvation. What do they do? They're ascribing salvation. They're indicating, they're crediting God with their own salvation because they themselves, in this group, innumerable, wearing white robes, holding the palm branches, as they worship, they are worshiping God for a salvation that's just happened. This is a group of people that are quite fresh in their salvation. Salvation is everything to them because it's just happened. They are the recently saved. No wonder there's so much worship going on. You remember what Jesus said about this in Luke chapter 15? Jesus says, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep which was lost. Jesus says, listen, I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Well, let me ask you, if there's joy in heaven over one who repents, what happens when there's an innumerable multitude of them? Man, worship party. Worship off the hook. These people are praising God for their salvation. And of course, you turn right around and what do you see? The angels and the elders and the four living creatures, they fall on their faces. They're whooping it up. They're saying, praise the Lord. They're singing. Look at it again. Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. This and so much of what we see in here in the revelation of Jesus Christ, this is what we would call ascribing praise. In the same way that these saved people are ascribing salvation to God, all of these things in verse 12 are being ascribed to God except one thing. Everything else. How do you bless God? You don't. You say blessing to God because all blessing comes from God. You're ascribing blessing to God. And you say glory because you're ascribing what He already has. You're calling out the character, the trait of God's glory. And wisdom, not because we give God wisdom, He already has it. And so our worship is calling out the wisdom that belongs to God. And honor, He's got the honor and power and might. All of these are God's, belong to God. So we worship ascribing these things to Him. Ascribing praise. But you saw what I skipped. There's one thing that we can bring in our worship to God. Just one. Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. That's something we we can give to Him. Thanks. For all of these other things that He is and that He does. Because no angel, no cherubim, no saint, no singer can offer any of these other things to God except for thanksgiving. By the way, Thanksgiving is huge in our in our lives. You know, I was talking to you about finding rest in the Lord tonight. You want to find rest in the Lord, stop striving, stop being discontent, and be thankful. I don't have this. I really wish we were in that position. Maybe someday we'll get there. Stop it. Stop. God, thank you for today. Thank you, Lord, talking personally, that I had an apple and some cheese to eat on my way to take David to Taekwondo and a tasty mug of tea. Thank you, Lord. 
Thank you, Father, that when I left the house today, I didn't have to do it threadbare. I actually had clothing to wear. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for my wife. Thank you for my kids. Thank you for the covering over my head, whatever size it is. Thank you for my fellowship. And I get to come here tonight and be with you and sing and worship God together. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for my breath. Thank you that today another day was given. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You know, the more you thank God, the more discontent goes right out the window. What do I have to be discontent about? Now, don't get me wrong, I got bills to pay, I got things to take care of, I got stuff ahead. And if I want to worry, we can talk worry. But be thankful. Thankfulness just, man, it washes over as we worship, as we praise Him. That's the key. That's why even our communion is called by some the Eucharist, the Eucharisteo in Greek. Thanksgiving. Be thankful. Well, these people are. One more thing to note about this group, this this white robe wearing palm frond waving innumerable group of people singing out salvation. Well, this group of people are also a complete mystery to John. He does not recognize them. If they were the church, you would think he would recognize them. He had no problem recognizing the church in chapters 2 and 3, right? If they were the church, you'd think John would be aware of them. But here we are in chapter 7, and he sees this massive multitude of people worshiping, and he doesn't have a clue who they are, verse 13. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, These who are clothed in the white robes, who are they? And where have they come from? And I, John, said to him, My Lord, you know. Or, Sir, you know. The use of the word kurios here is not Lord as in the Lord Jesus Christ or the Lord God. It's simply a respect, a show of respect. John is still blown away and looking around. And all of a sudden, one of these elders, you know, the 24 elders around the throne, casting their crowns, worshiping, they're in the whole thing. One of the elders comes up to him. Who is this? Sir, you know. Now listen, before we get to the answer. Pause for a moment and think about the elder. And consider the role of the elder. As we talked about before in Revelation 4 and 5, the elder is, I believe, representative of the church. I think that's the picture we're seeing there. That's the indication. If you're not sure about that, go back and listen to the teaching and and process it. But I think we're looking at the church. So here's a a Christian. Here's a a saved person. Here's one before the throne. They know what's going on. Part of the reason we're in the Word of God so much here at the bridge is we want to know what's going on. I would love for one of... This could be one of you. I just thought that. (laughs) How freaky is that? This, This could be one of you. This could be Shorty. You could walk up to John and go, Hey, hey, John. And you remember because you heard the teaching, so you're aware of this. Well, someone's got to ask him. (laughs) So the elder comes up and he says, who is this? Now, note what he's doing. And note this because the elder here, the presbyteros, is not a Presbyterian. Oh, it could be, I guess. Could have that background. But, But... And we're not talking about good teaching for elders of the church those who are in those positions of of leadership. No. If you aspire, if I would aspire to be a seasoned saint, one who is a mature believer, an elder in my faith, 
And follow the lead of this elder because the first thing we see right here that I want to point out is the elder educates the witness. John is simply witnessing these things and thanks to this elder, we get to know what's going on. Because he's educating, he's teaching. That's, that's, what, that's what mature believers do with other believers. And with those who are uncertain about what's happening, they teach. They naturally teach. Well, I'm no good at teaching Bible stories. I'm not saying that. You teach in your life. You teach because you, you know and you share as you see the need. Someone wants to know what's up. You're teaching. And so this elder anticipates John's question before he even asks. I'm convinced he looks over this elder. He sees John there. John is looking at the innumerable multitude and he's got this look on his face like, what? Who is this? I have no idea what's going on now. I've been on earth, now I'm back up in heaven, I see all these, who are, the palm, who is this? And the elder sees the look on his face. This elder's no soothsayer, he just reads John's confusion. You ever do that? Your parents ever look at your kids and you're trying to explain something and they have that look on their face like... <laughs> and they don't have any ideas, so, so you draw back and you, you explain. Or you're with a friend and something is shared and you look over and they're just going... So you explain, and that's what's happening here. And I pause on this because, brothers and sisters, this is an absolute key to effective witnessing. Sharing the Gospel. You don't need a training program. Just read the Word. Because what the elder does here is he anticipates John's question. You want to be an effective evangelist? A mature believer in this world? Man, anticipate the questions. Among your friends. You know what they're going to ask. Answer it before they ask. Look for open doors. Expect non-believing friends to have doubts and answer the doubt as you recognize they're thinking it. And again, this isn't hocus-pocus. It's not palm reading. You know your friends. You know what they're thinking. And there are so many opportunities where you'll be sitting with someone at dinner... And you're talking about something and you see them kind of pause and you know they're processing and you know it's a spiritual question but they're not about to ask it because you're out at dinner. Ask it for them. Step in and educate the witness. Peter put it this way in 1 Peter 3.15 Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Always ready. Always ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that's in you. Yet with gentleness and reverence Keep a good conscience, by the way, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, Peter says, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Note that. Peter's talking here about being an effective witness, being ready to make a defense, give answer to the questions, and then he immediately follows it by, and keep a good conscience in the thing in which you were slandered. Why would he say that? Because sometimes when you're being an effective witness, someone immediately turns around and tries to cut you down or makes fun of you for bringing up Jesus yet again. And Peter says, hey, you give the defense anyway, just make sure your lifestyle supports your mouth. You know, that you're walking your talk. Because witness is going to stir up slander. Sharing Jesus is going to stir up people. They might not expect it, but man, be ready to make the defense, anticipate the questions. That's what the elder does. He educates. Second thing, this elder empathizes with the sorrowful. 
He empathizes with the sorrowful. He knows who they are. He knows exactly who these people are here. His heart goes out to them. He wants John to know who these people are. Which is why he's asking the question. But do you remember? Go back to chapter 5, verse 4. Do you remember how he responded when John was the one weeping? Verse 4. John says, I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, perhaps the same one, maybe another elder. But this is an attribute of a seasoned saint. He said, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. The elder doesn't say, what's the matter with you? You're going to cry? Cry, baby, cry. What's the matter, you bonehead? Don't you know what's going on here? I mean, think about that. He could have said, you call yourself an apostle and you don't know who's worthy to open the scroll by now? John? No, he doesn't say that. He doesn't condescend from a place of higher faith. No, he helps John ascend to that place of understanding. He directs John's attention to Jesus. Which, by the way, tells us that the the answer to our weeping and our sorrow and despair is always Jesus. John's weeping, he points him to Jesus. Someone sorrowful, you point them to Jesus. But the elder, the seasoned saint, not only educates people in this world, but we empathize with the sorrowful. Compassion. Thirdly, the elder exemplifies the church. Again, the church. Throughout chapters 4 through 7, the elders typify the church. That is, note this, they are crowned in the presence of God. Chapter 4, verse 4. They wear white garments. They are focused on the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, the Little Lamb slain. Chapter 5. They sing the Song of the Redeemed. Chapter 5, verse 9. And here, you see them empathizing with the recently saved. Who are these people? I want you to know who they are. Which is why I'm asking you. Empathizing with the saved, instructing the confused, the seasoned saint doesn't look down on this multitude, but rejoices in their salvation. Verse 14, so John says, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Don't we know about that? To be shame-free, to be cleansed, to be whole by the blood of the Lamb. Isaiah 1.18 tells us, God says, come now, let's reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they'll be white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they will be like wool, and it's the blood of the Lamb that does that. We know that. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And so he says, these are those who washed their robes. They made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They have come out of the great tribulation. This innumerable number of tribulation martyrs are saved after the rapture of the church. And though they missed the catching up, they repented, they're redeemed right out of the great tribulation. 
Now, let's get some terminology right here. Because we've been talking about the fact that there's the seven-year tribulation. The first three and a half years is referred to as the tribulation. The second three and a half years is the great tribulation. And these are, they come out of the great tribulation. So are you saying that they're not saved until the second half? No. Now, I I, want to be clear about this. I could be wrong on this point. So again, this is not a dogmatic thing. I feel confident enough to say this. That the first half, first three and a half years, massive salvation taking place. Second three and a half years, it stops. No more. First three and a half years, we're seeing tribulation saints. That is, those who are killed in the truth. They come to faith in Jesus after the church is gone. And they are saved. And they are now seen in heaven, worshiping the Lord. They come right out of the tribulation. Yeah, but Rick, yeah, he says they come out of the great tribulation, and I thought you said they came out of the first half, the tribu- not the great tribulation, that's the second half. So how do you explain that? Note this. Technical, but note it. The word come is erxomenoi. And it is literally, it's in the present tense, so it's our coming. It's our coming. They are coming. So they're in process. This innumerable number is getting bigger. Even as John is learning about them, it's growing. Which is why I think you know the worship is continuing. And they continue to say salvation. Oh, there's another one. And he joins in the song because he's like, whoa, I'm saved. They are coming. And the Greek word out of, ek, tiny little word, it's just a preposition. But it's literally the point from which an action or motion proceeds. That is, out of, from, or, get this, away from. These are those who are coming away from the great tribulation. And so what I'm suggesting is the language indicates that they are coming away from. They are not in, they don't go into, they don't experience the great tribulation. Their martyrdom is happening in the first three and a half years. They are coming out of, away from the great tribulation. So I think it's, it's sound, again, not dogmatic. Some may be martyred and saved after the midpoint. I'm not saying that can't happen. I'm just saying it's unlikely, and you'll see why when we get further into the Revelation study. But either way, and even so, it is marvelous to note that the Lord Jesus, even in the first and second half of the tribulation, is still trying to save people. Even as the world has fallen apart under the wrath of the Lamb and the wrath of God, He is still trying to say that the offer remains. The hand is outstretched. Salvation remains available. And when I first learned that, I didn't like that. Because I'm part of the saved. And if they miss their chance, they miss their chance. I'm sorry, that's not fair. I live my life as a Christian. They're going to mess up, miss the rapture, and they still get to get saved? Absolutely. That's the grace of God, not the grace of Rick, which has limits. <laughs> God's grace knows no bounds. Because, as I said when we began, God knows His people. He knows those who are His. You know what that means? It means every last person that God knows is going to choose Him, will be saved. Every last one. There will not be a single person who misses out on salvation, who cries out the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter when they cry that out, 
God knows who His own are, knows who will be saved. He knows His people. For He Himself has said, Hebrews 13.5, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Remember what we talked about with Hebrews 13.5? That is the five negatives positive. Five negatives in that sentence. I will not, cannot leave you. I will never, no, never forsake you. Because God knows His people. Now I'm sharing that, and stay with me, for every believing mother with a son who does not believe. For every believing father with a daughter who has not chosen Jesus. For every born-again brother with a sister who doesn't know the Lord. For every born-again sister with a brother or a sister who doesn't know the Lord. For every grandparent, for every friend of a lost soul. For every one of us in here, listen, who know Jesus and know people who don't know Jesus. This is a marvelous truth. Never, never, never stop praying for them. Never stop interceding. If you are on your deathbed and the rapture has not happened, and you're breathing out and you know you're about to go, you pray for those you know don't know Jesus. You don't stop praying and you don't give up and you don't despair. Why? Well, listen, (laughs) I have seen in this age, and it's fascinating to me, more people come into faith in their 50s, 60s, and 70s than I have seen in my entire ministry life. I think that's indicative of the age. I think people are starting to clue in that there's not much time left. But I am seeing salvation come to older people, and it's interesting to me. So keep praying, because some of those older people have parents who prayed for them, passed away, and never saw their children saved. But God did. God did. Don't give up hope. Don't stop praying. And note this, even if you have a son or a daughter that misses the rapture and go into tribulation... There is a massive soul harvest that's going to take place. Massive numbers will be saved. Man, it's out of my hands. You know what's not out of my hands? Prayer. Intercession. Hands lifted up to God. Crying out the names of those I know need Jesus. I can do that. I can do that with great hope. Because multiplied millions are going to be saved in the tribulation by the long arm of grace. Isaiah 52 verse 10, The Lord has bared His holy arm in the sight of all the nations that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. Now I'm not talking universalism. And I'm not saying every last person will be saved. People have to choose Jesus Christ. You've got to name Jesus as Lord and Savior. And that's it. Faith in Jesus and salvation comes. And there will be countless numbers of people who reject Jesus and will not be saved. But there will be so many saved that I I can't even imagine. I believe that the church being instantly taken up out of this world will itself be a wake-up call to a lot of people who go to church but are not saved. To a lot of people who go to priester services, Christmas and Easter. They think that's good enough. Maybe someone who goes to confession once in a while, you know, or I was born 
and this church tradition or that denomination, so that's enough, that's good. And suddenly, they're going to see Christians gone. And it's going to have an impact. And I think there are going to be many who, on the day of the rapture, are going to drop to their knees and receive Jesus because they realize it was all true. So don't stop praying. Don't give up. You hold out hope. You, with every last breath, intercede on their behalf. Antichrist is going to ride in. More are going to get saved. Global warfare is going to hit. And famine and pestilence and death. More are going to be getting saved. All of this will happen like never before. And the 144,000 Jewish Billy Grahams are going to fan out across the earth. They're going to be declaring the glory of God. People are going to be getting saved. An enormous number from every nation, tribe, people, and tongue. And God knows His own, and He will not forget a single one. Verse 14, continuing, they have washed their robes. They've made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God. They serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will spread His tabernacle over them. They will hunger no longer, nor thirst anymore. Nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Now here's the other side of the coin. Some can hear what I'm talking about tonight and say, well then, why not just wait wait it out? We'll see if this is true. Mom, Dad telling me all this stuff. Okay, maybe it's true. If it is, and one day I call home and you're just not there, and I go to my local church and discover nobody's there, and I realize none of my Christian friends are showing up for a burger, and suddenly it hits that all the Christians are gone, well, I'll believe then. I've said this so many times. If you won't believe now, in the age of grace... In the year of His favor, who knows if you will even survive to believe in Him then. And if you survive, who knows if you're going to even be able to believe because rebellion pushes us further and further away from God. I'm not talking to parents and brothers and sisters and family and friends now like I was before where our hope is in Jesus Christ and we pray for salvation for everyone I'm talking about those who are right now choosing to rebel. Rebellion has a tendency just to keep going and toying with eternity. That is an awful risk. And there's no guarantee. Well, wait and see. Okay, you may wait and see and you may die in the early days of the ra- after the rapture. You might not make it by just putting it off. Well, I'll wait and see. And and note this, even for the multiplied millions here who are saved, they will escape the great tribulation, I believe, but their loss will be huge. What they go through in the process, we can't even imagine. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3.14, if any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. And if any man's work is burned up, he'll suffer loss. But he himself will be saved yet as through fire. Let me ask you right now, would you rather be saved yet as through fire or saved right now? 
by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. With all the hope that goes with it. Right now. Well, wait and see. Well, you're going to go through hell on earth. You will suffer great loss. They, these who come out from away from the great tribulation, they're going to know hunger like they've never known. They're going to know thirst. They're going to know the beating sun and the heat of the tribulation. They will know injustice, chapter 6, verse 10 tells us. They're going to know abuse, we'll see in chapter 13, verses 10 and 17. They will experience beheading for their faith, chapter 20, verse 4 tells us. In other words, get this, in the first three and a half years of the, of the tribulation, even though there will be multiplied millions saved, I think the indication is the persecution of Christians at that time will be unparalleled. In fact, unparalleled even looking at the first 300 years of the church where tens, well, up to perhaps 10 million were martyred. You're going to see more martyrdom than that in three and a half years. The persecution will be intense. And these trib martyrs, tribulation saints as it were, they arrive in heaven in tears rather than in triumph. The church, the raptured saints, we will arrive in triumph. We're going to arrive with Jesus in the clouds with shouts of joy and worship and praise overwhelmed at what's happened and excited and enthusiastic and victorious we'll be given those golden leafy crowns victory crowns the Stephanus crowns we'll be wearing these white garments we're going to be worshiping it's going to be fantastic wonderful this group arrives in tears because God has to wipe every tear from their eyes it's a very different situation that they would choose. And even more than all of that, stay with me, give me just five minutes. More than all of that, these tribulation martyrs may yet stand saved, but they are not the church. That is, they have a different place in heaven. They are not the bride of Christ. They will not know the marriage feast of the Lamb. They will not, they'll have a relationship with Jesus, mind you, but not the same. And in fact, a couple of things I can point out here. The tribulation martyrs are before the throne, verse 15, whereas the church, Christians, raptured saints, are on the throne. Sit down with Jesus, not just before or around. Revelation 3.21, he who overcomes Jesus says, I will grant to him to sit down with me. On my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on His throne. The martyrs serve Him day and night, verse 15 says. Wonderful, they get to serve Jesus. The church reigns with Jesus. Revelation 1.6, He made us to be a kingdom, priest to His God and Father. To Him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Revelation 5.10, He has made us unto our God, kings and priests, and we will reign on the earth. And a passage I've told you before that is one of the most um, hard to believe, to be honest. The only reason I believe it is Jesus said it. But it is almost unbelievable that to the church, to Christians, Jesus makes this stunning offer, blessed are those slaves whom the Master will find on the alert when He comes. Truly I say to you, Luke twelve thirty eight. He will gird Himself, have them recline, and will come up and wait on them. Unbelievable. 
tribulation martyrs, they come away from the great tribulation. The church is kept out of the entire tribulation. Revelation 3.10, because you've kept the word of my perseverance, I will keep you from the hour of testing. Luke 21.36, keep on the alert, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. We don't go into any of the tribulation. We are kept from it. The tribulation martyrs, last thing, believe because they have seen. The church did not see and yet believed. Jesus said in John 20, 29, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believe. What I'm saying is it's a different relationship. Saved, yes. For all eternity, absolutely. But it's a different relationship with promises not to be missed. And one of those promises starts right now. A promise we have here tonight, right now, in this life. It had been a dramatic start to the ministry of Jesus. He he presented Himself as the fulfillment of the Scripture of Isaiah. And He was booted out of His hometown. First thing, they tried to kill Him. So he leaves Nazareth. He, he, he moves to Galilee. He, he chooses 12 and he begins to train and disciple them. And they're going from village to village and the teaching is expanding and people are sitting up and taking notice and there is profound reaction throughout the Galilee. People turning out to hear Jesus and it's going so well he sends out the 12. He anoints them. He says, I want you to go and cast out demons because we need the demons out of the way so people can hear the word. And, and I want you to teach. And, and they go out and they come back to Jesus. And they are fired up. Because they've, they've been casting out demons. How many people have cast out a demon? Not many. And those of you who have don't want to raise your hand because like... <laughs> they cast out demons. They taught the Word. They come back to Jesus and they're like, This is awesome! It's been going so well. And they're all abuzz. And on that same day, Jesus had just heard that His cousin, John the Baptist, was beheaded. All this is going on. And Mark chapter 6, verse 30, says the apostles gathered with Jesus. They're all hopped up on their success. And they reported to Him all that they had done and taught. And He said to them, don't miss this tonight. He said to them, come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. Come away. That is Jesus' answer to all tribulations. You might be in tribulation right now. Not the tribulation, but tribulation in your life. You may have an exhausting week. Jesus says, come away. Come away. Look back at chapter 6, verse 10. They cried out with a a loud voice saying, this is the trib martyrs. How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each one of them a white robe. Note this, and they were told that they should do what? Rest. Rest for a little while longer. Those of you here, as God's wiping the tears from their eyes, rest. You know how they rest? They worship. They praise God. 
They recognize they are in the presence of the Lamb. They rest. Some of you tonight need to get away and rest with Jesus. Some need to come away to Jesus, maybe for the first time ever, before the tribulation begins. But wherever you're at tonight, verse 17, one more time, note this, the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Father, we come to You tonight to receive rest. My prayer, Lord, truly, is whether anyone remembers anything about the twelve tribes and Ephraim firstborn and the anointing and the sealing that takes place, whether anyone remembers who these martyrs are, what the palm branches stood for, any of that. Lord, we, we could forget everything else taught tonight, but I pray that we will remember to come away to a secluded place with You and find our rest. For whatever You have tomorrow, the day after that and the day after that, whatever You have planned next week or next month or next year, should You tarry, should You wait, whatever is before us, Father, we need the peace We need the strength. We need the power. We need the wisdom. Lord, we need the thanksgiving. All these things that come of resting in Jesus. And so I pray for a mentality of rest. Rest for our souls. Rest for our spirits. And peace. Lord Jesus, You said it. Peace. I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled nor let them be fearful. And so Jesus, we come to you for our rest. And we bless your name. In Jesus we pray. Amen. As we sing this song feel free to come forward if there's anything that we can pray with you about. If you want to give your life to Jesus tonight, won't you come? Let's stand and sing together.